Everyone, so just, um, after last uh, history class that I gave, well, I guess it was what, three, four weeks ago, um, someone asked if I could recommend a single volume, uh, you know, for, for Jewish history. Uh, so I brought over here my copy of Crash Course in Jewish History, which is, um, like I said, it's more of a traditional perspective. Um, and I think it's a fantastic uh, book. I use it a lot uh, for more of a kind of a Christian or more of a secular perspective, secular versus Jewish. Uh, I would uh, um, recommend A History of the Jews by Paul Johnson. Um, today, we are going to be talking about um, basically from the death of Alexander till the destruction of the Second Temple. So we're going to cover it. And if we get sidetracked, we'll just skip because we're going to finish it. Okay? That's the plan. Uh, and in this time period, we're going to meet uh, the um, preeminent uh, Jewish Roman historian uh, by the name of Josephus. Have you heard the name Josephus? Oh, yeah. Flavius Josephus. So he was, a, um, he was Jewish, and he was actually in charge of the resistance in the Galilee <coughs> during the Great Revolt. So he was part of like he was like a basically a Jewish general uh, in northern Israel during the time of the Great Revolt, but the year sixty six through the year seventy three of the Common Era. Uh, and he uh, he gave up resistance and he joined the Romans. And eventually, he was a he started off as a translator. He became the official chronicler or Chronicler, is that a word? I don't know if that's a word. Uh, chronicler of, of the Roman. He would go around with the Romans. He became a member of the Roman uh, royalty, even though it seems that he remained uh, uh, true to Judaism. He was a practicing Jew uh, through, through, you know, for the rest of his life. Uh, but he is indispensable for the study of, of this time period. Uh, he wrote these amazing books with so many details, highly recommended. Um, his three major books are... Um, Antiquities, we call it kinds of Jewish history. Uh, the Jewish Wars and Contra Appian. Contra Appian was a kind of a, a debate between, uh, there was this massive theological, ideological debate with this guy named Appian, and it was Contra Appian, it was against the guy Appian. Um, and a lot of what we're going to be discussing today is, is obviously from Josephus, which is, uh, you know, and he's a good source because, um, A, he's contemporary. He, he was there, he lived it, so, which is, you know, it's historical um, for a lot of what we're going to talk about, but also because he's not necessarily, bi well, everyone's biased, you know, that uh, all historians are biased. Uh, everyone has their slant, but he kind of has um, a representation from the Jewish perspective, but also from the Roman perspective, and uh, so he, he's considered very trustworthy uh, with regards to uh, ancient historians. Okay, so we left off last time we're talking about the great, the great Greek Empire and the great conquest, 10 years, of Alexander. So this guy, Alexander, this young, energetic general, he takes over an empire, which, well, it wasn't really an empire. It was a kingdom of his dad, Philip. He probably assassinated him. And he begins this decade of conquest, and he just keeps on going further and further. Never lost a battle. He ends up in India, as far, as far east as India, capturing everything in his way. Never lost a battle. And uh, there is mutiny amongst the soldiers. They revolt. Uh, he never makes it all the way back to, uh, to, to Greece. And you have this massive uh, empire that uh, there's no... Uh, Alexander dies. 
uh, and you have this massive empire that will eventually get split up into um, three separate empires. So what time frame is this? We're talking about the year three, uh, 323, uh, before the Common Era. Okay. Uh, so he's he died very young. He, he died. He was 32, 32 years old. That's right. He died he at the age of 32. Egypt, right? I don't know. Where did that lady die? He died. Made made sense. <laughs> yeah, no one really knows what he died from. This is a very exotic <coughs> disease. Um, so the empire, the massive empire, is split into three smaller empires. We have the uh, Macedonian Greek Empire, which is kind of Greek proper. We think of Greece today. You want to go visit Greece? That's kind of where Macedonia is. Um, actually, um, in Jewish sources, Alexander uh, uh, of Macedonia is called Alexander of Macedonia, so he's called Macedonia, is the name even then. Uh, you have the Seleucid, uh, which is like the Assyrian, kind of we think of, uh, of uh, things that are further east. So like Syria, what we call Syria today, Iran, Iraq, Persia, th- those areas were controlled by the Seleucids. And the Telemite, Telemite is spelled with a P-T, like if you don't pronounce the P, the Telemite uh, kingdom, which is which is Egypt, and you have this um, uh, friction that's going to develop, where you have the Jews and Israel that are sandwiched right between the Assyrian or the Seleucid Greeks and the Telemite or Egyptian Greeks, and that's going to exist for uh, a few hundred years, where they're going to be kind of sandwiched in between these two mighty empires, and. The, uh, the, the, the Israel is a very uh, crucial piece of land because it has access to the Mediterranean. It was uh, the, um, uh, the center point for, for a lot of ancient trade routes. So it's a very crucial piece of land that uh, is also going to be the place, kind of a battleground between these two warring empires, uh, the Seleucids and the, uh, and the, uh, and the Telemites. So uh, originally... The uh, Israel was under the control of the Telemites. Uh, that would go from about the year, I don't know exactly when it started, because it was, you know, once all the dust settled, they were under the control of the Telemites, uh, and that would go until the year 198 before the Common Era when the Seleucids would uh, capture uh, Israel and they would remain, uh, Israel remained under Seleucid rule. For um, for the next uh, you know couple of decades until we have the Mac- the Maccabean revolt, the Maccabean revolt was when the Jews revolted and they gained sovereignty over the land over the land of Israel and they would have sovereignty until the Romans came. So that's the big picture. Now smaller picture we have, uh, as we mentioned, when we talked about the Greeks. The Greeks when they had conquest, it was not just territory; it was about ideology as well. So they had a way of life. They were they they very developed in, in philosophy and art and architecture, etc. And when they would when they would capture territory, they would also infuse that territory with their way of, of thinking and their uh, philosophy, which has the name. What's the name of Greek philosophy? Hellenism. Yeah, Hellenism or Hellenistic. Now um, that began already with uh, with Alexander, and it continued by these kind of the um, uh, replacements or the, um, uh, uh, the continuations with the Ptolemites and the, uh, and the Seleucids. Uh, but what we find from, let's say, the, decade, uh, the century of, of Israel under uh, Ptolemaic rule was that they were um, a lot more tolerant. It seems like they were a lot more wealthy as well. They, they, were, they, you know, they were more advanced uh, and... <laughs> and therefore, the Jews kind of, it, it was always there on the surface 
And there were always a lot of Jews, unfortunately, that did kind of become these, you know, quasi Greeks, and they kind of abandoned, a lot of Jews abandoned uh, their uh, um, uh, their dedication or their tradition to, to Judaism. Uh, but the vast majority of Jews remained true to Judaism. But there was always this w- internal friction. And this would play out internally, but also it would also um, uh, express itself when you have um, when you have outside forces kind of uh, vying for the Jewish consciousness. And you know, we find historically this is an amazing pattern that you see again and again that the Jews themselves are much better at self-destruction than the Gentiles are at destroying the Jews. You know, We suffer a lot more from internal discord and Jew fighting against Jew. That hurts us a lot more than, 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 you know, than the fights with what, uh, what we call kind of our, our natural uh, antagonists or enemies. Go to a Par Mantra meeting in Israel sometime. Oh, the par- oh that's fantastic. <laughs> oh, hi. Yeah, it's 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 incredible when you you know you you think of like um, you think of Congress as being like you know everyone's put together everyone looks really nice and polished and these are like politicians you know you know they they try to reach across the aisle in Israel it's 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 pandemonium they're just fighting they they, they hurl insults at each other like yeah Jews and uh, democracy so it's <laughs> two Jews three opinions you know so yes um, but I, I think in Israel. You do see this a lot. You see, we'll talk more about the factionalism and sectarianism that existed uh, back then, and kind of the parallels that we have today in Israel. Um, but in the, in, you know, in, in these times, we're talking about the third century before the Common Era, so the year three hundred to the year two hundred. Um, we have a lot of friction. We have the uh, the Hellenized Jews. We have the more traditional Jews. We're going to meet a new group of Jews that's going to take that's going to take off called the Sadducees. Uh, they don't exist today. I don't hear the term Sadducees. It's a very famous term because Josephus, our preeminent historian, talks about them at great length. Uh, and in Jewish sources, we have the Tzidokim, every page, not every page of Talmud, but you find them a lot because they, they were a major, major player. Uh, we also have another group called the Baitusim. Uh, there was this one rabbi whose name was Antignos. Antignos, and it's interesting that you have uh, a lot of Jews adopting Greek names. Um, we mentioned last time that uh, Alexander kind of uh, captured Jerusalem and Israel peacefully. There was no, there was no, there was no battle whatsoever. It was the only time that Jerusalem was 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 captured without bloodshed. Uh, and I t- told you guys the whole story that he, you know, they met Rabbi Shimon, the the high priest, and he got off his horse. So they made a pledge to name all their kids, all the male male first, the male the male children born for the year afterwards. They would name them all Alexander. That's why Alexander is a common Jewish name till today. Sender, the name Sender. Is that story documented in secular sources? No, remember we don't have documentation of any of any of any. I'm saying external documentation of almost anything in the ancient world is not existent. You don't have the internet. You don't have newspapers. No, no, no. It's a good question. It's a good question. Well, because Constantine tells the same story about converting to Christianity. Yeah, it's the kind of thing. It's the kind of thing where the exact details of the stories we could always question the legitimacy and the veracity of them. But the overall picture of what it paints, we know that there was no battle of Alexander capturing Jerusalem. We know that for sure. So the story does jive 
uh, whether it's happened, whether it happened exactly the way the way it uh, is described, who knows? Is it historical? Remember, the Talmud was was written many years afterwards, so it had to be um, uh, retained some as someone as a tradition. Um, so, is it po- is it possible that it's hundred percent true? Yes, it's possible that there's some details that are not true. Also, yes, uh, but remember the flavor of the flavor of the story is more important than the actual details. And the flavor is that the Jews had a very uh, the Jews uh, with uh, had a very uh, you know uh, respect for a very deep respect and admiration for for Alexander. We know that we <laughs> lots of Jews even till today are called Alexander, and we have this story um, that was enshrined in the in the in the Talmud, and we know that there was no conquest. So yes, um, whether the details uh, match, who knows? Um, but the overall flavor of the story is for sure. Uh, there's something to. Um, uh, there's something to it, um, but what you do find is that a lot of uh, after this episode, you have a lot of Jews adopting uh, Greek names. You have a guy named Antignos. What kind of Jewish name is Antignos? It's like Abraham, Judah. These are Jewish names. And Antignos. That seems like I think it was a Greek name, and that was a common thing. You know, we're going to meet a a high priest. A high priest. This is like the leader of the people, right? This is the spiritually of the people, or, or at least it was supposed to be. The, the 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 office of the high priest got corrupted. A high priest by the name of Jason. Does that sound like a name for a high priest? I don't. I don't know. Um, so we were saying, what were we saying? I don't remember what we were up to. Oh yeah. So oh oh. So we have this guy named Antidnos. Uh, he was the Nasi. Nasi is a is a term, is a term for a prince. He was a, a political leader amongst the people, and he was also the Avdet, and he was also the head of the Sanhedrin. We talked about the Sanhedrin last time, a few times ago, I think. Sanhedrin was the uh, Supreme Court. It was a group established by Moses. It remained uninterrupted till the second century of the Common Era. So uh, he was the spiritual and the political leader of the people, and he had these two students. One of the name, one of them's name was Sadok. One of them's name was Baitos. And these uh, these two uh, students kind of took their own path. And they developed their own uh, subset of, of our religion. And the one thing that they, or the one, or the core of the conflict was the idea of the authority of the rabbis and the oral, the oral Torah. And they questioned the interpretations that were part of what the <coughs> mainstream Judaism kind of <coughs> believed and, and practiced. And they developed their own oral Torah. And what's interesting, it's important to point out, is that the Sadducees, if you would look at a Sadducee today, if you were able to, you, he would look like a very observant religious Jew. Um, in fact, in many areas, they were even more observant than what we call the, the Pharisees or the Perushim or what's like the mainstream Jews, uh, the major, vast majority of the Jews. The, uh, you know, they, they, they were many areas more stringent because they had to, you know, you have to develop your own oral Torah if you want to reject the, the, the if you want to reject the traditional oral Torah, you have to develop your own because a lot of the things in the Torah itself, the written Torah, it's not described uh, in detail how to do it. it it's, it's clear there has to be some sort of um, accompanying uh, corpus of information that, um, that, uh, that is going to explain to you, for example, what tefillin is. We read in the Shema, you should put totofos between your eyes. That's all it says. You could scour the entire Torah from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Deuteronomy, from the word Bereshit to the word Yisrael, and you won't find any description of what it looks like, what are these? What does it mean, totafot? What does that word even mean? Uh, what does it mean? What does it look like? How do you strap it? How do you bind it? Right? There, there's, there's no no instruction. Clearly, there has to be some sort of external instruction. And that's why, and if you look today, you look at the Jews and look at Jews from any part of the world, and they all wear the same tefillin. They're all black. 
they're all black boxes. They're all made of the same material. They, um, uh, the one on the head, it's actually not between the eyes. It means it's it means it's directly between your eyes, but it's actually on your head. It's but it's aligned. <coughs> and uh, the one on the head has four compartments, and each compartment contains a scroll. And the one on the arm has one compartment that contains one scroll that contains those four uh, sections of the Torah. And um, uh, when they uh, when they had the uh, discoveries at Qumran, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found film there. The film there today are identical to the film that we have. Um, so yes, and we have the Yemenite Jews who, who kind of went, went in their own way after the destruction of the First Temple. So they're not even part of our discussion. They, they're, they disappeared from the, uh, the Jewish view for 2,400 years, and they reemerged in this uh, past century, in the 20th century, in the 1950s and 60s. You know, they, the Yemenite Jews came all to Israel because when the when they established the Jewish state, all the Arab states sent their Jews packing. So all the Arab states, um, you know, which is when they talk about the right of return of the Palestinians or Arabs coming back to coming back to Israel, no one ever mentions that there was a comparable amount. Or even more, I think, more of Jews that were banished from their uh, from their uh, homelands, and they have been living there for also thousands of years. No one talks about that, of course. Any apologist that want to go back <laughs> would want to go back from to Yemen. Uh, disaster that that place is. So the Jews came from Yemen, came to Israel, and we mentioned this uh, with regards to their Torah scrolls. They brought their Torah scrolls, and the Torah scrolls were identical, you know, because the method of, 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 of uh, perpetuating a Torah scroll is, you know, done with such precision, and there's so many uh, safety measures that were enacted to ensure that Torah scrolls are copied perfectly. Similarly, when they brought their tefillin, tefillin were identical, you know. Jews throughout the world have the same tefillin, you know. And that's obviously a testament to some other method of instruction, and what we call that the oral Torah. So when you have the Sadducees that these uh, this group <coughs> merges, they actually they rejected the traditional oral Torah, but they had to develop their own Torah, their own oral Torah, uh, because there are a lot of gaps that are not filled. Uh, if you actually want to live as a Jew, as per the instruction of the Torah, you can't do it unless you take some sort of interpretation. So you have the option of taking the interpretation that is the entire Jewish people are doing for millennia, or you can make up your own, and then it's who knows if it's any more accurate than what we already have. Uh, interestingly, we find m- many mentions within the written Torah itself that there must be some oral documentation. For example, in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 21, we have the instruction of, uh, of, of the ritual slaughter, shechting of, of an animal. You want to eat uh, an animal, so you could either eat the animal by going to the temple and having a sacrifice and eating your steak. Or you could be in Houston, Texas, and you have kosher food. And then kosher food is there's a method of 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 making uh, of the making a ritually slaughtering a, an animal and making a kosher. Uh, and there's lots of details to that. And it says in the Torah, it says, "Hey, if you want to eat food, I'll get to you in a second, Noel. Um, if you want to eat food, but it's not in the form of a sacrifice, you know. So you should slaughter it as per my instruction." It says, Kasher uh, Tzivisi, as, as I instructed. And the Torah clearly is referencing some sort of instruction. But if you look from the first one of Genesis, the last one of Deuteronomy, you won't find any uh, reference to that instruction, yes. What's the big difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? The Sadducees and the Pharisees? What's, what's the big difference? I mean, I, mean, I know that they have a different role, but there's usually something that they do. Yeah, so um, whenever you have, you have a group that splinters away from another group, right what they always do is they 
take on a name for themselves, but they also rename the original group. So the Pharisees are the original group. That's the regular. That's the, the that's the Jews that don't that haven't taken any departures from what the tradition was. Um, typically, the Sadducees were the um, upper class, the priest class. That's why we talk about the corruption of the of the office of the high priest in the Second Temple. And we mentioned that while in the First Temple period, there was only a ten year difference in the length and duration of the First versus the Second Temple. In the First Temple period, you have <coughs> 18 high priests. In the second temple period, you have more than 300. Because it was a thing that you kind of bought. You know, it, 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 was, it was bought. And you have, it's interesting today, we can look, we can study and see how uh, in the Mishnah even, what they would try to do to weed out Sadducee high priests. Because they would deliberately try to corrupt the procedure and the routines in the temple. So if you open up the book of Yoma, the book of Yoma is a book uh, um, in the Mishnah, which is written on Yom Kippur. And it talks obviously about fasting and that, you know, and repenting, what we do today. But the vast majority of the book deals with what the high priest did on Yom Kippur. Because the, uh, in the temple, everything that they did uh, was done by the high priest. The high priest had to stay up the entire night. So it describes how he had to stay up overnight, and what he do if he starts he starts drifting off, and they would try to keep him up, and they would take off his shoes and put him on the cold floor to keep keep him awake. <coughs> At the crack of dawn, he starts working. He doesn't stop working till till till, till day is over because there's very intricate processes. He has to change his clothes ten times because there's gold clothes and the white clothes, and he goes into the into the holy of holies where he sees the, where where the ark of the covenant is. There's only one, only one time uh, a year. Uh, does anyone actually go in there? That's the that's the coin of the high priest on. On Yom Kippur, so it's the book about Yom Kippur, and it describes that the rabbis of the Sanhedrin would pull over the new the, the high priest and say to him, "Listen," you, they would force him to swear that he's not going to deviate away from the method of the procedures of of, of Yom Kippur, and they, they would make him swear. And the Talmud describes that the, the, what, the, the words that they would make him say, and he would cry, and they would cry because they suspected him of being. Uh, being uh, of being someone who's going to deliberate, deliberately sabotage the process. Very interesting. You know, you have a, a community, a Judaism, that's somewhat united. They have one temple, and they have one religion, and they have one Torah, but there's a very, very deep-seated differences. Uh, and and you don't know. You don't know. Is this, is this a Torah? Is he going to deliberately try to sabotage? What are you going to do? You know, we, we have the entire Jewish people that are uh, relying on this one coin. You know, he was nominated, so to speak, even though he actually probably bought it uh, from, uh, from, from the authorities. They would just pay whoever pays the highest dollar is going gonna to do it. That's, that's what it was, unfortunately. But he's there representing the entire people. And we want to make sure that he does it in a way he's not going to sabotage it. So, so that's that. So that's, that's existing um, uh, during the times of... Uh, uh, we have the Hellenized Jews, which are the ones that just say, screw it all, we're becoming like the Greeks, and they um, kind of rejected a lot of what it means to be Jewish. Um, were they completely like the Greeks? Obviously not. They were still Jewish, but they were Hellenized, you know. We would call, you know, call today, they, they kind of assimilated. You know, they're still Jews, they might still have some, uh, you know, Jewish affiliation, whatever, but they're assimilated. They're not, it's not that big of a deal in their lives. You have these Sadducees and the Baitusim, and these are Jews that are very into their Judaism and very involved, but uh, they take a divergent path, 
and you have the Pharisees, the Purushim. Now, this, this, uh, these denominations will expand by the time we reach the first century of the Common Era. We're going to meet other groups like the Essenes, like the Sicarium, like the Kanaim, like the Biryonim, all these um, uh, different groups, uh, and, and, and that will create this firestorm, like this, all this internal battle, kind of firestorm that will eventually culminate in the Great Revolt and eventually in the destruction of the First Temple. Now, what happened of note, uh, one major uh, item of note uh, happened in the third century before the Common Era that it's very important to, uh, to talk about. Uh, you have the Greeks, the Jews are under, under the control of the Ptolemaic Greeks. They took uh, somewhat of a, somewhat of a, uh, a lesser um, uh, uh, or position in, in trying to Hellenize the Jews. Yes, Hellenism was, was they were into it, but they were kind of like, you know, when, when people make a lot of money, kind of ideology kind of falls by the wayside. That's what happens. Uh, so so they, they were well-to-do, and, and they weren't pushing their agenda that much. But they were fascinated by the Jews. The Greeks were always fascinated by the Jews because they kind of found a certain kinship uh, amongst people that had the same desire for knowledge, you know, and philosophy. And you're living in a sea of pagans and a sea of probably very ignorant people. And the Jews are 100% literate. The Jews have a very uh, uh, organized system of, of life. They have uh, uh, they have um, philosophy, very very uh, developed and, and uh, sophisticated philosophy. And the Greeks, on the other hand, also are very into language and, and, and literacy and, and art and beauty. And they kind of had a lot in common, even though they were very different. Uh, the Greeks were renowned in their in their paganism as well. You know, uh, they would. They had this fascination with the Zeus, uh, with the Zeus guy, you know, and that was uh, that's antithetical to to what we believe in this one invisible God. But they were also fascinated by that, the idea of of, of one God, all the power, all the power, just uh, um, uh, coalesced into one God, and it's invisible. It was so bizarre and so uh, it was exciting. Also, it's like kind of today we have like the Near Eastern religions are very are very appealing, you know, like the Zen and the Buddhism, a lot of a lot of a lot of people like find that very exciting, you know. That's what Judaism was uh, two thousand years ago. So uh, this Talmite uh, emperor, Talmite Hammurabi with the third or the fourth, whatever I think it was the fourth. Uh, he uh, he uh, invited. Now the term "invited" we could probably put quotations around them. He invited the Jews to write a Greek translation of the Torah, and he actually took seventy rabbis. And he isolated them so that way they can conspire to um, uh, to write a kind of a Greek friendly uh, edition. So that's what that's what the, if you ever heard the term Septuagint, the term Septuagint, mm-hmm. Septuagint is the uh, first translation of the Torah that was written uh, under the under the stewardship of Ptolemy. I think the fourth. I think it was the fourth. Let's see if I can find that one here. Is that right? Is that right? The fourth. Um, there were about 20 of them. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would think they'll come up more like clever names, you know. Uh, so, in, uh, in Jewish sources, we have a description of the, um, the changes that, there were 36 changes that they actually made in the translation. Um, uh, and they all independently came to the realization that these changes had to be made, or else the Greeks would would find major beef um, with the people. The but seventy rabbis individually made identical 
that is that is the Jewish tradition. It's 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 um, it's portrayed as a, some sort of miracle that they each independently realized that these thirty six particular uh, changes were necessary, because if you read the Torah and you don't have the nuance and the kind of background and the methodology that we use to understand it, there will be some things that clearly don't make sense. Um, the uh, first example that we give is just in the very first chapter of Genesis, you have, uh, you have this, obviously, this one God that we're talking about, and we know that throughout the Torah we're dealing with this one God. And then God says, let us make men. Let us make men. Na'ase adam. Right? And that one letter, that one nun, makes it a plural. So there's, as if there's multiple people, or multiple individuals, multiple entities that are conspiring to make man. Now, in Jewish tradition, obviously, we're not, this is not multiple gods. Uh, now, in, if you just open up any one of the Jewish sources that talk about that, they reference uh, this, this midrash that says that God... Uh, that God is teaching us humility because God, um, uh, uh, he consulted with the angels that this is a good idea. Let's make, let's make man in our image. Let us make man. So if God consulted with the angels, it's not that there's multiple uh, entities uh, that have control. It's just one God, but he was consulting with the angels. So that's a nuance that we have because we have the Midrash and we have the perspective of how to read it, not as a literal document, but there, to know that there's more behind just the surface understanding of the words. But if you just translate that, clearly there's an inconsistency in the very first chapter. Uh, so that was a one, an example of one thing that they, that they, that they changed. So what is there, I thought me, make man? I, I think they wrote, like, let, let I, let, let, let I make, yeah, I'm going to make man, basically. Um, so wait, I'm confused. Do they make these changes to appease the Greeks so that they wouldn't kill him, or because they made I these think changes there was some so of that. that the Greeks could better understand I think Torah. I think I think it was probably a little bit of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of of kind of maybe you know rounding the edges of the things that could potentially uh, uh, invoke uh, enmity from the host nation, uh, and also probably a little bit of of clearing up of what could be perceived as inconsistencies from a unsophisticated, superficial reading of the text. A little bit of, a little bit of both. So what happened to that translation ultimately? We still have it. We still have a Septuagint. Um, it's still around. And it's we not, know what's it's interesting. It's not necessarily valid, right? Because well, I'm saying it's, it's, still, it's still... We have the original Hebrew text. Okay. <laughs> we, we have no problem with the actual oh, Hebrew okay. text. Uh, but when you deal with translations, and it's also very important as a historical marker... When we talk about the Torah, we know for sure, because it's been in, in Gentile hands for about 2,200 years. So whenever we deal with kind of looking at the Torah, the written Torah, from a historical lens, we know that it's not just us holding this document. It's been in secular or Gentile hands for at least since the time of the Septuagint. Um, but what's, what's also interesting from, from at that time period what this actually enabled, it was actually, there's a minor fast day. It's not actually observed as a fast day, but it's a day of, uh, uh, it's considered to be a day of mourning, the day that they, uh, they, they completed the Septuagint, because uh, this is the, only, the first time that the Torah is going to be in non-Jewish hands, and that is going to open the door to a lot of, you know, they're critiquing our our religion, 
Uh, but additionally, it's going to open up the door for Jews learning Greek. Because the Jews, once you have that, you, you, you notice you know Hebrew, and now you see the Greek translation, it's very easy for you to learn. It's to learn. It's a, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. So you'll see that there's going to, after this point, you're going to see a rise in, in inroads or uh, in, in confluence, if that's even a word, between the Jewish people and the Greeks because now they, they can learn Greek. And now they have some sort of common, uh, your common text that they can discuss with their Greek friends, etc. Okay, so that's so that's the Septuagint, um, and we have obviously the uh, factionalism within the Jewish people, and uh, the year one ninety eight is going to be a pivotal year because that's the year that the Seleucids and Antiochus the third, he um, he is going to capture Israel from the Ptolemites. Uh, and the Seleucids, they had this, like we said, an inferiority complex towards the Ptolemites, and they're going to take a much more proactive uh, stance in trying to Hellenize the Jews. Uh, so you have Antiochus III, and then his son, Antiochus IV, he, uh, he took over, and he was a little bit more ruthless and brutal than his father, and he began... Uh, he began to attempt to systematically dismantle and de- deconstruct the Jewish religion. And he wanted to make it into somewhat of a Greek hub. He knew, obviously, like we mentioned, uh, he understood that it was a very crucial uh, uh, location in the world. Uh, it, it was a place, obviously, had access to the, to the you know, to, to to major trade routes and to and to the Mediterranean. And he believed that the only way for him to actually um, you know, achieve uh, what what he set out to do was if he if he made the um, the local indigenous population, he made them into like a, a Greek uh, and Hellenized um, citizens. Uh, that's one of the reasons uh, given as to why he began this uh, crusade, if you will, of attempting to. Um, basically end the Jewish religion as we know it. Um, and there are other reasons given uh, as to the rationale of why, why he chose to do what he did. Either way, what we know for sure is that he began by uh, deposing the, uh, the high priest, the fellow by the name of Yehoshua, and he installed uh, the, his Hellenized brother Jason uh, as, as the high priest. And you have now Hellenized priest as the high priest in the temple. Think about what that means for what the Jews... And he began to institute pagan practices in the temple. Now, um, obviously, this is going to cause a lot of internal friction. Think about that. You know, imagine the, the most uh, sacred uh, and sacrosanct uh, uh, office of, of the Jewish people is now going to be defiled by what we call the Hellenized Jews, guys trying to institute Greek practice uh, in in, um, in into the temple, temple itself. So Jason was Jewish. Of course, he was the Jewish. Brother of the monarch. That's uh, he wasn't. You know, he's brother of the of the previous Toindradol. And he's going to have fights with a, oh, with a different guy. They're fighting back and forth, and there's the armies. It's a lot of details. Um, but that was the first thing that he did. He started meddling in the internal affairs of Jewish people. 
uh, he forbade any time-related Jewish practice. We know that our religion is heavily governed by by time-based rituals. So obviously we have the Shabbat is, is, is every Saturday. We have the holidays that are very much linked to the lunar calendar. We have very sophisticated methods of of, of organizing the calendar, you know, we, we know, you know, we know already in in the Talmudic sources, the Mishnah, thousands of years ago, they had exact down to the second calculations of the lunar month. Uh, so you ask most people like, how long is the lunar month? They won't know that the correct answer is twenty nine days, twelve hours, forty four minutes, three seconds. That is down to the second. Like that's it's incredible the, the the sophistication they had, because it's so important. Because that basically is the rhythm of Jewish life. There's the holidays, and then the holidays of Rosh Hashanah is on the first day of of the month of Tishrei, and Passover is on the fifteenth of Nisan. And these themes are, are very much governed, you know, how we live as Jews. And Antiochus understood if you want to discount the Jews from their religion, one of the things that you will do is you're going to forbid them to update their calendar and constantly be uh, recalibrating their calendar, and then they can't, they don't know, is it Passover today, is it tomorrow, is it yesterday, is it a week from now, who knows? Um, so that was one thing that he did. Um, he forbade on pain of death study of Torah, publicly burned Torah scrolls and other Jewish sacred books, he forbade the practice of, of uh, kosher consumption, um, the laws of uh, family purity, laws of nida, he forbade. Uh, and lastly, and this is the thing that uh, the, probably the most challenged mitzvah of all time, he forbade circumcision. And we know the Greeks had a fascination with the human body, and they considered circumcision to be, uh, to be uh, a... Um, a, 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 a pro, uh, uh, profaning of what they believe to be beautiful and to be holy, and that is uh, the, uh, the human body. And we know that the Greeks and their gymnasiums, everyone, um, everyone uh, engaged in sport in, in the nude. That was common. Uh, you look at all the Greek... Um, <laughs> you know, you look at all the, all the Greek uh, statues, there's all these, like, these you know, perfectly sculpted... Um, Macho men, all in the nude, and that was that was common practice. They had the Greeks; uh, they had um, public uh, public uh, toilets installed, and it was just basically like a bench with uh, with a hole in it, and that was just common. That's what people did, you know. They, they you know, because why should you be embarrassed of, of 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 this beauty that you have? Now the Jews, Jews are all circumcised. So now, if a Jew wants to make inroads in into um, into just well, it's just the man, right? Uh, into uh, into that's that's correct. Uh, into um, into the Greek world, he wants to participate in the gymnasium. Like, what are you going to do now? You have a certain, you're you're mutilated. I'm going to laugh at you. So they they would go engage on this uh, circumcision reversal surgery. It's called Moshe Harlosa. They would try to like take uh, whatever remaining flesh uh, is there, try to pull it back, and try to. Undo, which sound yes, that's the ooh, the ooh factor, very high, very painful, and uh, yeah. So that's what they would do. Uh, but they, f- that's what the Hellenized Jews would do. In fact, it's interesting that our sages tell us that uh, when someone when someone does that, when someone does a a a, a circumcision reversal surgery, they're basically excommunicated from the people. Even though, uh, interestingly, there's no 
mitzvah in the Torah, there's no prohibition in the Torah, do not undo your circumcision. But it seems like it was it was kind of like a, a symbolism. There was heavy symbolism that this is the mark of a Jew. Someone is choosing to run away from that. Well, then they're kind of separating themselves from the people. Uh, I have a nice here quote from a book that I read. Uh, Barrel Wine. It's I think Echoes of Glory. It talks about the Jewish uh, Jewish people in that time, as follows. Uh, it talks about the uh, persecution of. Jewish practice uh, under uh, Antiochus IV. Women who allowed their sons to be circumcised were killed with their sons tied around their neck. The scholars of Israel were hounded, hunted down, and killed. Jews who refused to eat pork or sacrifice hogs were tortured to death. Even the smallest hamlets in Judah were not safe from the oppression of the Greeks. The altars of Zeus and other uh, pagan uh, deities were erected in every village, and Jews of every area were forced to participate in sacrificial services. They try to think about that. They think about what kind of oppression uh, on on the religious life of the people at that time. Uh, they began to try to attempt to sacrifice pigs in the temple, even though that didn't happen till later. So, what you actually have here is very interesting: is the first religious and ideological war. The uh, Antiochus and the Assyrian or Seleucid Greeks they already had control of the territory. They were there. They were in charge. But they uh, they began this war. It was a religious war. It was it was trying to separate the Jews from their religion, not necessarily separate the Jews from the land because they already had that. Um, so you have this combination of the external pressure of the uh, of the of the um, of the conquering nation, their uh, increase in uh, oppression and intolerance towards us practicing our religion. They um, uh, enacting many rules prohibiting you know very basic elements of, of Jewish practice. You have the internal infighting, the uh, the Sadducees and the high priest and the high society sect on one hand, the Pharisees, more the traditional, the mainstream, the vast majority of the Jews on the other hand, and this third group of the Hellenized Jews that said, let's just all become uh, Greeks, and why do we have to you know live this uh, arcane way of life? And this uh, was obviously uh, bound to erupt, and it in fact did with the Maccabean revolt of the year 67. Of the year 67, we have somewhat of a discrepancy of the years. We can use the year 67 because that's, I think, the uh, accepted uh, in secular sources. It seems like in Jewish sources it might be a little later, the year 38. Either way, I don't think it's that relevant for us. Just know there's debate as to when it's actually happened. And the, uh, the revolt began in the city called Modi'in. Uh, it was began by an individual by the name of Matthias or Matisyahu. Uh, and he had his five sons, five famous sons, Judah, Judah Maccabee, we all know him. Uh, other names of his sons are Shimon, Elazar, Yochanan, and Yonatan. What actually happened, this is, Modi'in is in central Israel. Uh, what happened was there was a, the local, I guess, uh, garrison or whatever, they, uh, like we said, they they had they take every every little you know they would try to institute uh, pagan practice in every little every little town. So they 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 came to town and they said, okay, who here is going to sacrifice a pig to Zeus? And obviously, this is something which is uh, anathema to to the Jews. But there was this one Hellenized Jew who said, okay, I'll do it, and he gets up there and he makes a sacrifice, and this enraged uh, Matthias or Matthias. 
And he said, I'm just going to go kill them all. So he pulls out a dagger and he goes and he slashes and he kills this Hellenized Jew. And he starts attacking uh, the Greeks. And this sparks a massive, massive revolt that would begin 25 years of resistance and would culminate in the Jewish people and the Mac- under the leadership of the Maccabees would culminate in them actually driving the Greeks out of Israel and establishing sovereignty and establishing their own uh, uh, leadership. Um, we have this famous war cry, Mikamocho Be'elim Hashem, that's the... Um, that's the the term the, the word Maccabee in Hebrew is an acronym for Hashem, who is like you amongst God, Hashem, our God. Uh, we have Mila uh, Hashem Elad, the war, the, the, the rallying cry of, of the Maccabees. Who uh, um, um, the story goes, the legend goes, whether it's true or not, the details, right? Um, Matthias cries out, "Who is the God come with me?" So they flee to the hills and. They assemble this ragtag group of of uh, of, of of Jewish uh, fighters. Obviously, they weren't trained. They were Jews. Jews. Um, uh, they weren't professional. They didn't have professional equipment or uh, professional training. But they assemble a group of maybe a, uh, ten to twelve thousand. That's the numbers roughly given. Uh, and they begin this war against uh, professional fighters, a group of somewhat um, in the neighborhood of 40,000. So they were vastly outnumbered. And not only were they outnumbered in just men and fighting forces, but also in training and equipment and in war elephants. Now you say, what's a war elephant? So in ancient, uh, in ancient warfare, it was the equivalent of a tank. You have an elephant that's trained for this kind of battle, just barrels through um, and you have, the, on top of that, you have these guys shooting spears, throwing spears or shooting arrows. It was just a tremendous, tremendous force that, um, that the Greeks had and the Jews didn't. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, Judah, Judah eventually became, he was the military uh, leader of, the, of, of, of this rebellion. He actually died um, in, um, in an attack on a war elephant. He went under. The, he thought there was this uh, Greek general on top of the war elephant, so he went under it and he started. He killed the um, he killed the elephant, but the elephant collapsed on him and just killed him. And um, he actually thought that there was a general. In fact, there actually wasn't a general. Um, uh, and eventually, in war, the majority of uh, Matthias's uh, sons died. Uh, the survivor was was Shimon. But obviously, because they had major disadvantages militarily, they had to come up with uh, clever schemes, and they, they did. I, I once said, I have a friend of mine in Israel who lives in Atlanta now, but he gave a whole class, maybe I could find it somewhere in my archives, he gave a whole class about all the details of the military war, and they would have to use these clever schemes, and they would, they would use this, these trickery, they would split up, and they would attack from both sides, attack in the middle of the night, <laughs> they didn't care. The Jews were crazy maniacs, they, they fought like crazy maniacs. You find this today, we think of Jews as, you know, these... These quiet, you know, nice Jewish boy, right? That uh, you know, these lawyers that the uh, do do good nits. And in ancient times, these Jews were maniacs, and they fought, and no one wanted to fight them. You know, the the Jews revolted. We'll see when, when we deal with the Romans. The Jews revolted more than any other people in 500 years of Roman uh, dominion of the world, and they were always scared of the Jews because the Jews when they were they would fight, they would fight like maniacs, like absolute maniacs. 
Um, so there's a lot of details in, in, this, in this rebellion, um, but eventually after three years, they were able to capture, recapture Jerusalem. The temple's in shambles. They rededicated the temple. That's when the story of the, of the flask of oil. Um, the war continued, and after about 25 years, they eventually were able to uh, send all of the Assyrians packing and reestablish uh, their own borders and their own control, their own dominion, their own sovereignty. Um, now, in, in modern times, this is always portrayed as a struggle of, a nationalistic struggle, you know, the, the, the fight for national liberation and these mighty warriors. And, you know, and, and in Israel, you know, the Zionists always that they adopted this as a model, you know, uh, this battle for nationalism and this, uh, you know, this, 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 uh, this underdog that's going to take on, the Jews were like these underdogs, they going to take on the, 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 the juggernaut, the behemoth. And uh, in reality, uh, it wasn't so much about, about, national liberation, nationalism, it was more about preserving the way of life. Uh, because Antiochus and the Greeks, they were um, limiting the Jews in, in religion. And the Jews have lived for many, many a century under, uh, under foreign uh, control and were fine with that, typically. Uh, what actually sparked the rebellion was not the nationalistic influences as much as it was just this feeling of being cornered from a ideological perspective. Uh, so, so that's what's very interesting about, uh, 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 about this uh, particular rebellion. And we know we have Hanukkah coming up in about two weeks, and we celebrate it every, you know, every year. We celebrate it. You know, we celebrate this um, this victory of the small group of Jews over this mighty empire. Uh, but uh, obviously, while it it has the, you know, the, the, the military itself, the significance uh, is not understated. What's interesting about what we do today in Hanukkah and kind of the, uh, the, uh, the practices and the rituals that were established were all about the, about the oil. It's, it's remarkable. It seems like it's an afterthought, you know. There was a massive battle and there's a tremendous miracle of the military success of the small group over the, over the mighty empire. And that's not what we focus on uh, during during Hanukkah. We have all about the oil and the rededication of the temple. It's remarkable. I, I think that the lesson there's probably a few lessons that we could that we could uh, draw from this. But perhaps one of the lessons is that it's important for us to not lose perspective over what was actually the the impetus for this rebellion. It wasn't about the military. The military was just the tool that they had to use. And obviously it was a tremendous miracle, and we can't forget about that as well. But the flask of oil, which is representative of, of the temple and Jewish practice in the temple as it was uh, uh, when it did not have any uh, foreign meddling, that is what they were really going for. So when we celebrate Hanukkah, of course the, the, the most important thing about uh, the story, the episode, was the military. No one denies that. But it's important for us to not lose sight of the reason or the uh, of the cause behind it. Right? What drove the Jews to rebel and to be successful? It was about this flask of oil. Obviously, the flask of oil is representative of this way of life and this uh, way of practice that they want to uh, they wanted to reclaim. So, so in light of that, why why is Hanukkah considered to be a a minor Jewish uh, well, holiday? Well, it's interesting. It's a good, good question you ask because. 
Hanukkah was really the last holiday that was established. Purim, remember, came before that. Um, uh, we have um, the Book of Maccabees. Everyone knows the Book of Maccabees. It was a book written from Jewish sources um, about this whole story. It gives us all the details of the story, uh, the Book of Maccabees. It's not included in the, in the Jewish canon. Now, if you remember we spoke last time, we had the Men of the Great Assembly, uh, the body of the expanded Sanhedrin. They canonized the Bible. So that came afterwards. After the canon was completed, no, uh, no other works could be included. So the Book of Maccabees could not be included, and no work afterwards can be included, as remarkable as they may have been. Uh, but also, because it is a holiday that was not, it's not in the Torah, remember the Torah, the Torah is a thousand years earlier. The Torah gives us many holidays, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, um, Passover, Pesach, Shavuot, those are all holidays that are in the Torah itself. Uh, versus, let's say, Purim and Hanukkah, these are holidays that were established as a result of the tremendous miracles that happened to the Jews in Persia. Uh, during the Purim story, and to the Jews in Israel during the Hanukkah stories, um, and therefore they are of lesser, not lesser uh, importance. Uh, less, who are we to say less important? The point is they don't have the same significance as the ones that are actually in the Torah itself. So that's why they're, they are um, rabbinic law. In fact, when we talk about rabbinic law, there's only seven mitzvahs that were established by, uh, by the rabbis that we have today as, uh, that are our mitzvahs. One of them is Purim. One of them is Hanukkah. Lighting the candles of Hanukkah is a mitzvah, but it's rabbinic. It's not in the Torah. It doesn't say the Torah light Hanukkah candles. Obviously, the Torah was written many, many hundreds of years earlier. Um, so it's rabbinic law. Um, the license that the rabbis have to enact mitzvahs, that's in the Torah. The Torah says that these, uh, this group, this body of the Sanhedrin, has the right to establish mitzvahs if they decide to. And they did, and they did with seven mitzvahs. When we talk about rabbinic law in general, most of them are not rabbinic mitzvahs, but in fact rabbinic edicts, what we call the um, fences around the Torah, which is not its own law, isolated law, rather it's a protection agent against the uh, the encroachment of a Torah law. Make sense? A classic example is that uh, on Shabbat, one of the th- third and prohi- prohibited acts on Shabbat is writing two letters, and that's a law in the Torah, and the rabbi said, don't lift a pen. So it's obviously, it's not its own law. It's a rabbinic law, don't lift a pen. That's a rabbinic law, but it's not its own isolated law. In fact, it's just a, it, it, it's a law that's, uh, that, was, uh, that, was, um, that was enacted to protect the Torah law. So it's a fence around the Torah law. That's what it says in the Torah. Made, made fences around my laws. But, it's not, but Hanukkah is an example of the one of the very, very, very few um, mitzvahs that are entirely rabbinic. What are the seven? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the, I, I don't remember all, all of them. Um, um, lighting Shabbos candles, Shabbos candles, Shabbos candles. Um, lighting the prayers before the feeding, right? Um, uh, I th- that might be that might be one of them as well. I get the list. Um, well, after uh, after the meal is that's in the Torah. Right? Rabbi, let me ask you a question. Yes, question. It's a little bit ironic that the whole celebration of Hanukkah was this miracle that Jews refused to assimilate, and the Almighty backed them in, in fighting this remarkable war. And now we're And now it's like the Hanukkah celebration. It's like we'll give presents so they, our kids don't feel left out like all the Christian kids. I mean. Um, 
Yeah, I didn't realize it before it, it lasted 25 years. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't realize that. I thought it was like yeah. Um, <laughs> I, listen, there's there's more irony to that, you know. Uh, I, I think I might have mentioned this once before. The um, the uh, Israeli Olympic team is called the Maccabees, mm-hmm. and uh, we have like the Maccabee Games. What's remarkable is that the Olympics obviously were a Greek invention. It's like the whole you see like this this guy throwing a discus, you know, and the Maccabees. The the whole reason why they were uh, the, they, they began yeah, the revolt is to fight against that. So it's yeah, it's one of the great ironies. Listen, I'm, am I going to tell you that not to give presents? I give my kids presents on Hanukkah. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Um, and I think it's a good for, thing for them to have positive associations with with mitzvahs. It's a very 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 good thing. You know, my kids know that on Shabbat they get to drink as much Coca Cola as they can possibly consume. Well, within moderation, you know, because to them I want them to have positive associations with with Jewish life. Yeah. I say, okay, you know, sit in your seat, be quiet, and eat your vegetables. I'll say, oh, Shabbos is so miserable. Uh, and if I say, come to shul, come to synagogue, sit down in your seat, don't make a noise. And that's hard for a kid. I say, hey, come to shul, go play with your friends, have a good time. You know, it, I want them to re- realize that the mitzvahs are a privilege and it's a positive thing. And my kids love the Shabbat. They love it. They know that they're limited. My, my son, what my son tell me? Um, this week, he said, uh, he wanted to use scissors he says, scissors are mutsa. We'll use it tomorrow. He, he knows that in observing the Shabbat, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. But they love it. And every Friday, you know, when you're, when you have special Shabbos treats, and we have Shabbos candy, and it's delightful, and it's exciting, and there's dessert, and they get to play with their friends. It's, it's, they love it. And I, I encourage that. You know, so I think when we talk about, you know, giving gifts on Hanukkah, I think it's a very good thing, you know. Um, it's a very good thing for us where our, our kids associate uh, Jewish practice, Jewish mitzvahs, Jewish life, uh, with positive emotions. I will say, like, huh? We went, we've been to Wolby House twice now. My daughter gets, oh, she, loves it. she gets more excited than when she ever going to Disney World. Yeah. She was in heaven. She was just <laughs> okay. So back to history. <laughs> so um, the term Hasmonean. <laughs> Chashmonaim. So the Maccabees and the Chashmonaim, they're the same, same group. Um, they are going to be the family of Jewish royalty that's going to uh, oversee this next period, about 100 years, where the Jews are going to have sovereignty over Israel. Uh, now remember, we're going to start off this 100-year period uh, with one of the most remarkable families and remarkable heroes that the people, uh, the Jewish people, have ever seen. Mighty warriors, tremendously dedicated to the Torah, um, uh, just fantastic, a fantastic group of, of, of great heroes. Uh, unfortunately, one of the great tragedies in Jewish history is this family is going to devolve, and by the end of this hundred-year period, we're going to have that these Hasmoneans being uh, declaring themselves as king, even though remember they were priests. And to be a king in the Jewish people, you have to come from the house of David. David is from the tribe of Judah. Um, priests are from the tribe of Levi. They uh, made this critical error of declaring themselves kings. They, uh, many of them became Sadducees and Hellenized. Many of them um, conspired against uh, the masses. And there was a lot of friction. Eventually, they're going to be the ones who are going to invite the Romans in. 
Uh, but it started off with uh, Shimon. Shimon was the last surviving son of Matthias. Five sons. Uh, we know Judah Maccabee, of course, we know him. Uh, other ones as well, they all participated in some form or another rebellion. Shimon was the last one, and uh, he took on the title of Nasi. Nasi means president uh, of the people. President? Yeah. In France. Uh, prince, oh, prince, president, uh, president. president. Uh, now, this, there's a clear distinction between the term Nasi and the term Amela Hakim. He understood, obviously, that he had no claims to the throne because in Jewish, in the Jewish world, unless you're from the house of David, you cannot be a king. Uh, this distinction of calling himself uh, prince was going to be lost in future, future generations. And already, like his son, uh, his name was uh, Yochanan. Let's see if I remember his name here. Name written down somewhere here. Yochanan uh, Herkinus, or something like that. So many names here to remember. So his son was already going to be a, a, a become eventually a Sadducee. His son, and they're going to be infighting. They're be assassinations. They're going to be like they're going to get invited to parties, and they're going to be assassinated. It's crazy what goes on. Brothers killing each other. It's just they were fighting back and forth uh, um, to uh, over over the kingdom. Uh, we're going to meet a guy by the name of Alexander Yanai. Uh, <coughs> he was a uh, he was a king. And a high priest, this is common, in the house of the Hasmoneans. Even though he was a Sadducee, and he, a uh, famous story that we have about him, uh, was that he, uh, on the holiday of Sukkot, there was a mitzvah that the Sadducees rejected, the mitzvah of a li- water libation, a very special mitzvah that only, had, they only did once a year. A special water libation, they take water from the Silwan, uh, from the river that goes right outside of the temple area, and they were poured on the altar. So all the Jews are there, and, and this guy, Alexander Yanai, what kind of name is that, Alexander Yanai? Anyhow, um, he's a king, and he's the high priest, even though he has no right to be the king. And uh, and he decides to screw with the people, so he takes, instead of pouring the water on the altar, he pours water on his, own, on his legs. And that just in, in, you know uh, incensed the people. And everyone's there, they all started throwing their esrogs at him. So he, began, he was pelted by thousands of people. He almost died. And he freaked out and he told his mercenaries to go, go, to, to go stamp out this uh, rebellion. And they slaughtered, I think the number that we have in the sources is 6,000 people were slaughtered uh, by this horrible episode. So this kind of gives us an insight of what it was like uh, what, what it was like living with the Hasmoneans and how they kind of devolved <coughs> away from their uh, uh, tremendous roots uh, and became this uh, this family of of of, uh, of, um, of 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 leaders that uh, rejected <coughs> their um, their beginnings. What, what year was that? That was the year ninety five uh, before the Common Era. Um, we have I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Let's see if it's written down here. Uh, we have one of them. I apologize for not uh, remembering the name here. His name was also Yochanan. He, yes, um, he did something. Uh, his name is Shimon's son. His name was Yochanan. Yochanan Harkinus, I think his name was Hierkinus. Uh He um, made a mistake that the Jewish people would suffer uh, enormously from. He did something unprecedented before that or afterwards in in Jewish life. In an attempt to expand the borders, he did forcible conversions. He for he proselytized. Yeah. 
He proselytes, but he forced conversions. Uh, we know that in Jewish law, conversion is something that we do not uh, we do not force. Uh, we don't we don't encourage. If someone wants to convert, they can convert. Uh, but it was never forced, and it wasn't even encouraged. If someone wants to convert, let them convert. Uh, but he uh, took masses of people and forced them to become Jewish in an effort to expand the, you know, the Jewish influence. Uh, one of the groups that he converted was the Edomians. The Edomians. And this caused a lot of problems because there was this major question as to the legitimacy of, their, of the Jewishness of these people. You have tons of people that are quote-unquote Jews, they're Jewish citizens, but who knows if they're really Jewish. And one of the descendants of these Edomians is a fellow by the name of Herod, Herod the Great, son of Antipater. He was an Edomian. And when you read about the conflict that Herod had with the Jews, a lot of it was based with this major, major question as to the legitimacy of his, of his Jewishness. And he would bring in the rabbis and he would say to them, hey, am I Jewish? And they would have to <laughs> tiptoe around him because he was a madman. Herod was a madman. He slaughtered thousands of rabbis. In fact, Herod, we'll get to him a little bit later, but Herod, um, he decreed, he, he, was, he was basically Stalin, the same, the same kind of uh, individual. He, would, um, he was tremendously paranoid. Uh, he, uh, he assassinated members of his own family, anyone who he considered to be, uh, to be in any way questioning his authority. Ruthless and brutal, he killed his own wife and his five kids because he thought they were they were going against him. He murdered thousands of rabbis. Um, he just had a reign of terror uh, 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 in his leadership. He uh, also, interestingly, he um, he decreed that the day he died, a thousand rabbis should be slaughtered because he didn't want the Jews to be rejoicing. Let's think about how. So sick. He didn't want the Jews to be rejoicing when he died, so he decreed that when he, the day he dies, a thousand rabbis should be slaughtered, so that way everyone would be mourning. Uh, in reality, it didn't happen, but that just shows you what kind of individual. But he was an Edomian, and that was a result of this uh, poor decision by Yochanan, son of Shimon, who, became, who was one of the Hasmonean kings, the Hasmonean dynasty, who <coughs> uh, made a decision that uh, the Jewish people paid very, very dearly uh, for that. Uh, so you have um, uh, a whole string of, of, of Hasmonean teens. They were fighting with each other, all these su- all these assassinations back and forth. Alexander Yanai, we said the story about Alexander Yanai. Uh, his wife uh, was a minor uh, bright spot in the uh, Hasmonean uh, dynasty. She was Her name, her name was Shlom Tzion. Hebrew name was Shlom Tzion. Hamalka, she ruled for nine years, and when she died in the year 67, that basically marked the end of the Hasmonean rule. She had two sons. One of the name was uh, Aristobulus, I think. And the other one was also Hyrcanus, Hyrcanus. So the year 67, uh, we have this um, Hasmonean dynasty is going to end. Uh, her two sons are basically fighting back and forth uh, as to who's going to be the leader. Uh, they make this ill-fated decision to ask the uh, burgeoning uh, Romans to mediate. So Pompey, Pompey was this um, mighty and brutal general who was in charge of Rome. He understood that uh, the, once you know, it was very important for Roman for the Romans to have a nice foothold in. Uh, in in Israel, 
So he came in and he decided to mediate between these two. So what he did was he murdered one of them, Yochanan, and he hired Kinnis, and he instituted Aristobulus to be like a... Um, a, a, uh, a basically a Roman puppet leader, and you find that uh, from from that point on, I think it was year sixty four. From that point on, the Romans would be in charge, and even though the Romans wouldn't have direct rule all the time, sometimes they would have direct rule. The Romans typically liked to rule by proxy, so they would have uh, like a uh, a uh, uh, local leader to be the quote unquote king or or uh, administrator, but in reality, they would. Uh, they would be in charge, and if they, you know, if this this guy, uh, if you know, if he if he didn't uh, kind of perform to the standards that they wanted, they would just, you know, they would just execute him and you know move on. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, Pompey. Eventually, we know uh, Pompey was uh, he and his arch rival. Well, they had a falling out between him and and Julius Caesar. Eventually, Julius Caesar becomes uh, contr- takes uh, control. And he uh, institutes uh, Antipater as being the proxy, the Roman leader of of Israel, of of, of Judah. And eventually, his son Herod um, he uh, he became king of Israel, and he he ruled for about thirty seven years. I think I don't know the exact years, maybe uh, uh, I think it was forty four to. I guess that will be like, uh, I'm sorry, 41 before the Common Era to 4 before the Common Era when he died. And he was basically the last uh, Jewish king over Israel, even though he uh, he was still um, governed by the Romans, he was basically the last king of Israel. Um, and from then on, you would have Roman procurators and administrators to be in charge of Israel for hundreds of years. Um, obviously, throughout the destruction of the temple, etc., meet people by by the name of of um, Florus and Pontius Pilate. All those names that we're familiar with, um, those were Romans who were in control of Israel, who um, were Roman procurators. You know, they were basically administrators of of, of Israel. And you know what they would do um, in the case of, let's say, proxy or proxy leaders. Very interesting. Uh, Herod had uh, his two sons were um, uh, were basically taken captive to Rome. So you would have a local leader. It's very, very interesting how they would do that. So the Romans take, take control of, of, of territory. They, they institute uh, some a local to be the proxy ruler. They would take his kids and bring them to Rome, to, and, and they, would, they would grow up in Rome. And what the, you know, the way it worked is that if, this, if he misbehaved, you know that his kids are done, you know. You know, very smart, very smart. They take, take, take like uh, collateral. So Herod's kids grew up in 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 Rome. But also the future <coughs> generation of rulers would be sorely Romanized. Exactly, exactly. Um, so this guy Herod, like we already mentioned, he was an Edomite, so he wasn't even Jewish, or or maybe he was. We have this whole, um, uh, you know, he was, yeah, he was Jewish, yeah. Um, <laughs> He was a renowned builder. There was no, he's one of the greatest builders in history. We know that he built these massive cities, all of them, these grandiose cities. He built the um, largest Caesarea everywhere. Every, every city they called Caesarea because he got a, you know, he got a curry favor with the, with the Romans. Um, he built um, the fortress at Masada, right? This tremendous, with, uh, with palaces, we know that Masada is the one uh, archaeological site in Israel that was fully excavated. So we have, if you go there today, you see these amazing, ornate um, 
these amazingly ornate palaces that Herod built, and he built it as a completely self-sustaining uh, civilization. So you, so you actually had, we know that the resistance uh, at Masada outlasted everyone uh, um, uh, throughout the Great Revolt to the year 73. So three years after the temple was destroyed, all of Judah is, uh, is burning, uh, and the, uh, the people, the Jews that were in Masada, about 1,000 people, they were still around. They actually committed suicide because the Romans had no idea how to get up there because it was so well fortified and it was so, it could, it could it, you know, they could, they could lay siege to it, but it doesn't matter because it was self-sustaining. They had agriculture up there as well. The agriculture and, 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 and water and everything, they were able to, uh, to be self-sustaining. Uh, and that was built by Herod. <coughs> he built uh, Herodium. Herodium is the largest man-made mountain in the world. Uh, he built, he refurbished the temple, you know, and he built the most magnificent temple in, in history. In fact, the Talmud says that whoever never, whoever, if you didn't see the temple of Herod, you never saw a beautiful building in your life. That's what it says. So beautiful, it describes these like blue waves of crystals, gorgeous. Um, he built uh, the, um, the uh, platform the largest man-made platform in the world is Temple Mount. On Temple Mount, you could put 12 football fields. It's enormous. It's the largest religious site in the world. Bigger than, bigger than in Mecca, Medina. Bigger, it's probably, I think it's probably it's bigger than anything that the so, Christians have. So it's when enormous. They, when they refer to the Temple of Herod, they're referring to what yes. now is the Western Wall. Uh, well, the Western Wall, interesting, also built by Herod. The Western Wall is the retaining site of that, uh, the retaining wall of that, yeah. uh, of that man-made platform. So the Romans who destroyed the Temple of Herod. Yes, yes. Well, now, uh, what he refurbished it in the year 19. Uh, it's a very interesting story. I actually have it over here um, in the sources. I want to read to you why he decided to, to re. Um, to re um, why he decided to refurbish the temple. He refurbished the temple in the year 19 before the Common Era. Um, it's just. <clears throat> even the Western Wall, you see, like, if you ever go there, you see these massive, massive stones. Enormous stones, and it's a great, tremendous feat of engineering and architecture for him to actually do that. And it actually goes much, much further down. If you go to the um, the tunnel tours in Israel, you go further down. It was just, just I don't know exactly the, the details. It was just, um, um, but very, very, very deep. You have these massive, this one rock. I think it raised like fifty thousand tons. It's just incredible how they actually moved it. Uh, we know that he actually uh, to build the um, just just to build the platform on, on, um, to support the platform that he built, it took 10,000 men 10 years to do. He would undertake these enormous, enormous engineering and, and architectural projects that would take years and years to finish. And he, just, and he built palaces everywhere, north, south, anywhere you want, he had a palace. Was this yeah. slave labor? It was not slave labor, actually. He paid them. He was very, you know, he, he, they collected a lot of taxes. They had a lot of money. It was not slave labor, interestingly. How about that seaport Haifa? Yeah, well, he built... Um, um, Caesarea, not, not just the, right, a little south of Haifa, Caesarea, which was at that point the largest port in, in the world. He built that. He just had these mass. He was a megalomaniac, basically. Um, he was a, uh, a, a narcissistic, paranoid megalomaniac. Which is so, what was his motivation very, in, in. Oh, so there's a Talmud the, tells this great story. Listen to this Talmud story. Um, a Talmud, he has a whole section of Talmud that t- talks about the friction that he had with the rabbis because remember, they weren't even sure if he's Jewish he would say, oh, am I Jewish? Not. and then they would say, ah and then he would execute them all 
So listen to this. I'm reading this quote from Baba, Baba Basra, uh, um, uh, uh, um, page three. Herod went and killed most of the rabbis. However, he left Bava Bambuta alive in order to use him as an advisor. So he killed lots of rabbis and he left one of them by the name of Bava Bambuta. That was his name. Herod put a crown of sharpened porcupine skin around his eyes and the sharp, these spikes, they, they, they blinded him. So he basically gouged out this rabbi's eyes. One day, Herod, he was pretending to be a regular citizen. He sat down in front of Bava Bambuta. He was blind and he started talking to him. He says, Rabbi, do you realize the horrible things that this no good slave is doing? He's referring to himself, Herod himself. So uh, Bava Bambuta responded, what should I do? Um, what, can I, what can I do about what Herod's doing? So Herod himself is talking to him and he says to him, curse him, we're going to curse him. <clears throat> he was basically looking for legitimacy to, to go against, uh, you know, to I just execute him or execute all the rabbis, whatever. So, so Bava Bambuta said, how can I curse him? It says, and he quotes a verse from Ecclesiastes, even in your thoughts, do not curse a king. You can now allow to curse a king. Herod's a king. So Herod responded, he's not a king. He doesn't fit, fit the criteria. He's, he may, may not be Jewish. <clears throat> so Bava Muta says, even if he's not a king, he is no less than a rich man. And that same verse in Ecclesiastes says, and in your bedchamber, do not curse the rich. He says, what time am I going to curse Herod? He's rich. Um, and he is certainly no different than a leader. And it says, and he quotes another verse, um, it, this is a verse in Exodus, Nasi Sar, do not curse a leader of your people. So Herod basically tells him, listen, I'm Herod. So Herod then confessed, I am Herod, and if I had known that the rabbis were so careful in the words, I would not have killed them. Now please tell me, what can I do to rectify what I have done? How, how do I repent for this? Um, so um, Bavud responded, since you snuffed out the light of the world, which is reference to all the rabbis that you killed to provide insight and vision for the people, you should involve yourself in increasing the light of the world, which is reference to the temple. And someone who and, and there and the Talmud concludes someone who has not seen the temple that Herod built has not seen the magnificent building in his life. That's a story of of, of of Herod and the motivation that he had to refurbish the temple. So he he went out of his way to build the most magnificent building in the world. And if the um, if the um, uh, the great wonders of the world of ancient times had not been already sealed before that, many probably most of of Herod's accomplishments. Uh, would have been included in, in in that list. The temple would have been included. Herodium would have been included. Remember, Herodium was a man-built mountain that was about a thousand feet tall. It was enormous with 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 um, with aqueducts and and palaces and just remarkable, remarkable. But still, you could go visit it today in Israel. The um, Masada. Was, yes, yes. Go ahead. The story I got was that the uh, where I see it, Israelis <coughs> conquered uh, Herod's place and. Made his father and him convert or something like that. No, that was earlier. That was yeah, early. Yochanan. Yo, yeah. So they, but, they. But then the snobs in Israel refused to because he's trying to convert. They they refused him to, to recognize him. Yeah. Well. Yeah, but we point, as I mentioned, to Yochanan, son of Shimon, who did this forcible conversion as making a crucial mistake, because what he all he did was invite this question of. The, the legitimacy of all these Jews. So you're 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 incorporating all these Jews into you into your nation, but then there's going to be a major question that would uh, continue for 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 decades as to whether or not they're really Jews. Yeah, like are they truly Jewish in their heart and committed to the Jewish Yeah, or laws, and, and they just yeah. wolves in sheep's clothing through forced conversion. Exactly. Like Exactly. So it was a mistake that the Jews themselves did, and they brought so much pain and suffering and agony 
uh, uh, on the heels of that decision with kind of what they what they had to deal with uh, with Herod and uh, um, and everything that came afterwards. So now uh, Herod dies. Um, he had three sons, and they, you know, there was a whole debate. They split up the kingdom. All these details, you know. Uh, eventually, the Romans instituted their uh, a um, a um, the Romans instituted a procurator, and there would be only one uh, one other uh, Jewish king uh, in 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 the land of Israel, a fellow by the name of Agrippas, Agrippas the first, and he's actually viewed very positively uh, in Jewish literature. Uh, because it seems like he was very loyal to the Jewish cause, the Jewish people, etc. As, as opposed to, he was a grandson of Herod. Um, uh, Herod, Herod had uh, his three kids. One of them was named uh, was Herod. Um, that from the from the New Testament, um, I can't remember the names of all his kids. Either way, um, they didn't have um, uh, that significant of impact uh, uh, on the on the nation. Uh, this guy Agrippas was uh, Agrippas the first. He was in charge for a while. He obviously, because he was relatively good, he was executed. It happens all the time. Any good kings, it's not gonna last. He was only king for three years. Um, and then we meet, like we, like I mentioned earlier, we meet individuals that were Romans who were the procurators of the land. Uh, Pontius Pilate, we mentioned, um, uh, Florus who was just a terrible, brutal, and really um, unskilled administrator. And under his leadership, we're going to see the... He, he's going to incite the people to revolt. He was uh, a feckless leader, and he basically wanted to cover the tracks of, of his inadequacy by just slaughtering all the Jews, uh, mm-hmm. you know, due to the... Um, due to the uh, tremendous... Um, he's basically going to incite them to revolt. Uh, that's what uh, that's that uh, that's uh, that's what uh, Floris did. Um, we, we need this right. Uh, we have Stop. three more minutes here. I'm trying to figure out how we're going to finish this. Okay. Um, <coughs> well, we can just take it from there if you want. So yeah. You so talk about the next. Well, next classes, week. The, the yes, classes. different groups, different groups. Uh, subjects that we want to do. Oh, oh, yeah. So, so, so let's stop here. Um, what we're going to start next week, we're going to start from. We have another week of another history. We will start from the Great Revolt in the year sixty-six, and obviously culminating in the destruction of the Temple in the year seventy. Uh, we'll talk about the different factors, different factions that exist among the people. We already talked about them a little bit. We talked about the Sadducees and the Hellenized Jews and the Pharisees and all that internal discord. Uh, we'll talk about that. <coughs> Um, we'll start from there next week. You guys have uh, we're working on the curriculum for the first quarter. 